There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now here are your hosts, Kim Foskey and Dr. Dana Saperstein. On today's episode, we're going to switch gears and speak about the unspeakable, death. We're joined in studio by Darina Pearson, who through her own experience of facing the sudden and tragic loss of her father at an early age, she began her own healing journey that subsequently led her to become a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in grief and bereavement counseling for hospice patients and their families. We hope you enjoy our discussion with Darina. So on this uh, quintessential Southern California day, we're going to talk about a topic uh, that is taboo uh, to most of us um, and only thing guaranteed in life, and that is the subject of death. Um, Darina, um, thanks for being here. Um, again, I want to give you uh, props for uh, the job that you do, not only for hospice in, in Santa Barbara, but for its patients and, and families as well. And uh, I, I, we've talked about this already, but why don't you give our listeners a little idea of who Darina is? Thanks, Dana. I'm glad to be here. And Kim, um, I'm a grief counselor with VNA Health. I work in their bereavement care program and help to coordinate that program, which provides grief counseling and grief support to all members of our community. And, and how long have you been doing this for? I've been at VNA Health um, in the bereavement care program for 13 years. And prior to that, I was a hospice volunteer for about six and a half years. So I think that's the, the interesting um, aspect of how you got involved in doing what you're doing. Um, so I think the listeners would be very interested in, in some of what you did as a volunteer and how that kind of led you into what you're doing today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I became a hospice volunteer after my mother died in 2001. Uh, but I had actually been drawn to the work for really honestly most of my life, which is based on an early loss in my family where I lost my father at the age of two. And uh, that event was a very important part of my entire existence growing up. And sometimes I describe it as I grew up with a bereaved person, my mother. And then um, in my in my 20s, you know, I got married and had children, but still felt very, very drawn towards this great mystery of death and uh, the dying process and grief, which was something both known and unknown to me was the grief process. And uh, after much time, um, and my mother died after a long illness in 2001, and I finally felt like I want, to, I want to go. I want to go work somehow in that area. And I just picked up the phone and called. It was called Visiting Nurse and Hospice Care then, and six months later started a training uh, for to become a hospice volunteer, and I've been with them ever since, one way or another. And are there different volunteer um, options for hospice 
uh, volunteers? There are. Um, the training that I did and what a lot of people do is um, training to be part of the hospice care team where you go into the home or the place where the person is who is receiving hospice care and you help out. You're part of the team, you're part of the nurse, the social worker, the chaplain, the doctor, all of the people who are helping to care for the patient. You're actually, as a volunteer, an important part of the team in, in the sense of um, there might be things needed that um, all of the other disciplines aren't doing, I, you know, whether it's companionship, uh, helping out with household tasks, um, listening to the person or, and their family. Uh, so volunteering is a, a hugely important and rewarding part of hospice care. After doing it for um, six and a half, seven years, I decided I really wanted to work in the field and I needed qualifications. So I went back to school and now I'm a licensed clinical social worker and a full-time grief counselor with hospice. So Dana, why are we fearful of death? Well, I think that um, there there are certain aspects of the concept of death that are frightening sometimes it's not knowing what's going to happen when you die like i don't think that anybody actually really knows for sure what happens after we die lots of different theories lots of different ideas there has been some stuff written about that though yes yeah <laughs> and there are some people actually you know who really believe that they have uh, sort of insight into that into that process um i think that the, the actual well, you would probably speak better about it than I would, Darina. The, the process of what you go through when, you're, when you go on to hospice is, uh, has all different types of fears. You know, the fear of kind of losing control of yourself, the fear of maybe being a nuisance, the fear of, of uh, uh, you know, the embarrassment of maybe losing control of some of your, uh, uh, you know, abilities to function, all kinds of different stuff. But I, I, I would absolutely believe that you would speak better about this than I would, um, What's your most, um, what are the most common fears that come up for you when you're working with people? Well, I think you've identified many of them and the fear of the unknown, and the fear of uncertainty, uh, and simply the, the fear of, of pain, whether it's emotional pain or psychological pain, physical pain, of course. I mean, the fear of that is, right. is common. And um, I think little like people who get a cancer diagnosis, you know, they fear, you know, what's going to happen to my body? What's going to happen to my functioning? You know, how am I going to be? Uh, I think anytime anyone loses health, you know, they, they enter into that world of fear. Um, with it, Maybe with a diagnosis even of a chronic illness, there's a fear around functioning and, and well-being and just how how is this going to be for me? Um there are a lot of myths around hospice care that it's only at the end. It means you're dying, you know, that we work really hard to try to allay those, you know, that that's not the case. My, my mother-in-law um, in Minnesota died a number of years ago, but she went on hospice care um, in her uh, home at, which was when it was, which was in Minnesota. And she was, I think, 91 at the time and had, you know, pretty severe Parkinson's and other conditions. And when she went on hospice care, I was like, great, this is so good. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was my response because now she has a chaplain who's going to come and visit her. Now she has more services. Now she has, I think she even had a music therapist, you know, who came. And so my, my feeling of, you know, grandma's on hospice care was like, this is good, you know, where it's just so different to how some people 
experience that word hospice is, instills fear unnecessarily, I would say, in some people. And Eva, my mother-in-law, was on hospice care for five months and then died um, in her, you know, where she was residing um, under that care. And my husband, her, her son, was lucky enough to be with her when she died. And it was one of the most... Um, you know, mystical and, and special experiences of his life was to be with his mother as she passed. And he speaks of it to this day, you know, with sort of tears in his eyes and a lot of emotion and a lot of just gratitude that that could happen, you know. So there's, um, but back to fear, <laughs> there are many fears associated with illness and um, the dying process. And how do you help people when you can tell that they're actually feeling really overwhelmed with that fear? Right. Um, well, sometimes knowledge is helpful. You know, sometimes just just having some more knowledge is reassuring because, again, the fear of the unknown is really threatening, right? You know, and, and sometimes we can um, give just knowledge about what to expect or what could happen, you know, how to prepare oneself in different ways. Uh, but sometimes the fear of the unknown is fear of, an, of a completely unforeseeable future. Like if, if um, a woman says to me, my husband's on hospice care. They say he only has three weeks to live. We've been married for 45 years. I don't think I can survive this loss. And this is reasonable, right? Common right. feeling to have. I can't necessarily say, you know, that's an unnecessary fear. I, you know, that's the fear that she has at that moment. But what we can say is, I understand. I hear you. Um, there are many others who've, who've gone through similar experiences. I've worked with some of them. You won't be alone after he dies. You know, you'll have help. And and there are things that will help in the future, you know, that, that you'll kind of learn more about when you're there kind of thing, about living without him or coping without him or... So, so I think the fears need to be respected because they're really real. <laughs> right. But there are also things that can help. You know, it's interesting you bring up the notion of uh, helping the person realize they're not going to be alone in the process. I think that that, in my clinical work, is one of the most important things in helping people manage whatever their fears might be. Mm -hmm. uh, not just necessarily, you know, dying, but just about any fear mm -hmm. can be more easily uh, met when you have company, mm -hmm. when you have someone that, that, you know, that really cares about you and is willing to be present with you while you're going through whatever you go through. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, if you think about being a little kid, right, what do we do for our children when they're afraid? Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully we don't shame them and tell them that there's nothing to be afraid of. Right. Right. You know, we, we supposed to comfort them. Yes. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, we're supposed to comfort them. Take Theoretically. Them our, correct. Yes. We've talked about this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Take them in our arms mm -hmm. and help them feel safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we ever outgrow that need for connection, whatever age we might be, because it's the most comfortable way to yeah. deal with vulnerability. It doesn't make the fear go away, but it certainly makes tolerating the fear and managing it much, much more uh, effective. I think I agree, absolutely. And all we have to have been is alone and fearful once in our lives ourselves when we know what it's like. Right. You know, I mean, someone calls me for grief support. I've been the person picking up the phone looking for help. You know, I mean, I know what that's like. The, right. 
even the, the fear of picking up the phone and making the phone call, you know, so, so it, all you have to do is just recognize that it, we're kind of all in the same boat here, you know, or, or I've been in the boat that you're in now previously, or I will be again. <laughs> so right. the, the kind of commonality of that, I think, is, is a really helpful way of looking at all of this. Um, so... You mentioned a few minutes ago that you decided to formally go into hospice work when your mom died. Mm-hmm. Was there something about her death that sort of, that led you specifically to want to start working in this area? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was really my my father's death when I was two that was the instigating, you know, um, inspiration. And his was a sudden death. Um, my father was a young man of thirty two. And he took a commercial airline flight um, in Canada, actually, where we were living at the time. Even though we're an Irish family, we were living in Canada. And it was a commercial flight from Montreal to Toronto. And the plane went down. Everybody on board died, 118 people. Wow. It, was, it was a disaster. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm too young to remember it because I was only two. But uh, it was, you know, the 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 event of my childhood that kind of set everything else in motion, including moving back to Ireland and growing up there and um, much later having a a really strong grief experience of my own, um, much, much later in my 20s, that all came out later. In relationship to his death? I believe so. Yeah. Um, How, How did your mom, do you remember how your mom reacted to your father's passing? Um, at at the, the the exact time that it happened, I was I was too young to have a memory of it, Kim. But I'll give you a shorthand. It was one week after the JFK assassination, and this is a, a young woman in her thirties with a little boy and little girl, and everyone said to my mother, "Look at Mrs. Kennedy, look at Mrs. Kennedy." And if you remember, Jackie <laughs> presented stoic. a stoic, right. which yeah. was probably shock, you know, probably trauma, but and as she presented in a certain way. So that was my mother's template. It was that you're supposed to be sort of maybe like Jackie Kennedy. You know, I mean, the whole thing was just ridiculous in terms of how one really is as a human being with, with the hard times and disasters and traumas. But um, she, she had little support. She had um, a family who cared about her but were thousands of miles away. She did not have an occupation that she could um, you know, generate income from. She, she had... She had a great deal of stress, um, and um, it was very poignant for me many, many years later uh, when she came to to visit me and my family here in, in Santa Barbara, and she said, you know, I heard of something they have nowadays, and it's it's called grief counseling. That, that would have been good. No, it was just like I, I wasn't a grief counselor myself. I wasn't even a hospice volunteer, but it was so poignant to think of she identified the thing that she had needed, you know. And so now that I'm working this field myself, I just think it's all very, it's very connected, you know, to sure. to my early experiences. Then when when she died, um, you know, I like to say sometimes one of my parents died very suddenly in this sudden event, and my mother died slowly of dementia. Vascular dementia can look like Alzheimer's. My mother passed from exactly the same thing. Vascular dementia, mm-hmm. really, Kim? Oh. Just this past January. Oh, my goodness. Well, then you know. 
I, I know the hospice services exactly, and, and again, the misnomer that, that hospice is, is connected to the end of life. Um, she was on hospice probably 18 months, something like that, not only when she was living with my sister, but when she uh, moved into a, a memory care center. She continued to be on hospice till the day she passed. Oh, and yeah. it, it, it was a wonderful service. I'm glad. I'm glad that helped her. Yeah, and it's so hard for everyone to see all those changes happening, and it's brutal. It, yeah, it's a long death. It's a very long death, and in my mother's case, um, she died in 2001, so 20 years ago. Um, she was only 72 when she died, so it kind of started early-ish, you know, in a way. Um, and I went through quite a, a quite a time. Uh, still occasionally hits me where I just wondered if I was going to get her condition when I was older. You know, I mean, it's not that it's a, you know, necessarily heritable illness, but her mother had the same thing. Her sister had the same thing. And the one person in the family, my Irish family, they look at me, they say, you're the image of your mother. It's a I little mean, scary if they all died from dementia. You bring up an interesting uh, um, topic there. Um, I'm an adopted child. Okay. So I didn't know my family history um, up until probably five years ago. And as you get older, and, and I'm sure we'll broach the subject uh, today, mortality becomes a bigger issue in your mind. Yeah. Um, and every time that I would go for my yearly physical. My physician would ask me if you found out any more about your family history because it would not only help me, but it would also save you from having to go through a battery of testing every year um, on yeah. that. Um, so I totally, I totally get that from the, boy, what am I predisposed to? What, I, what could I die from? Mm. You know, how old were my biological parents w when they passed and so on and so forth? And through that investigation over the last five years, I've been able to find a lot of those things out. Um, mm. You know, so I'm not predisposed to vascular dementia, but I'm also predisposed to other uh, cardiovascular issues. So. Yeah, yeah. But it, and it, but it does get yeah. me thinking about okay, I have, I still have, what I consider younger kids. I still have two teenagers and, and one adult daughter right now, and we talk about, you know the fear of dying, for me, it is, okay, if I go in, and it used to be 10 years ago where I'd go in and have my yearly physical, it'd be like, hey, all's good, we'll see you next year. And now my mindset is every time I go in, it's like, oh, how many things are going to be wrong this time? And is it going to be, yeah, you need to talk to an oncologist right now type thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I start thinking about that in my head, if I had to sit down there and got the stage three or stage four, cancer diagnosis my biggest fear is i still have kids that i have to raise right right, right. so yeah often our, our worst fears are, are are around our our families or our kids of you know almost put up with anything but not them you right. know not them be hurt yeah so i was thinking about while you were speaking about your experience with hospice I don't want to call it, and again, I don't want to bunch it into how we do healthcare in the United States, which is reactive and not proactive. But you are, in a sense, 
reactive in, in terms of somebody it's kind of toward end of life have gotten that diagnosis, maybe have weeks to live, months to live or a year to live type thing. So you're reacting to that. And, and I'm kind of interested in, in both of your perspectives of, of when we talk about the fear of death, should this be more of a proactive discussion over life? Before mm-hmm. we, before mm-hmm. we get to this point of, well, you're going to die and you're going to die soon and mm-hmm. you got to prepare yourself for it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is helpful if we can soften that conversation and allow for it in, in different ways at different times. It doesn't have to be always super heavy or scary conversation, but just to kind of allow it in the room sometimes with, with conversations and... I have definitely have friends who are very open to talking about these things. Um, those of us that work in the hospice and palliative care and grief fields, I think we are talking about these things a lot. Maybe there's a little more comfort with talking about them, but it still calls for a sort of a gentleness, I think, so that people aren't just, just their anxiety doesn't rise up too high, you know that's the last thing one wants to do is just trigger a whole bunch of anxiety in ourselves or in others. So sort of finding ways to, to talk about it without it being super threatening. Um, I know with my own children, I've been less likely to share stories and talk about the very things that I encounter, you know, all the time, sort of as protecting them a, a little bit. Um, my husband <laughs> over 30 plus years has been privy to, much, much talk from me about death, you know, my thoughts, my fears, my process, you know, bless him. He's a wonderful listener and a really great partner for all of that. But for instance, just back to what you were saying there, Kim, um, a while back, um, my husband and I decided, okay, we'd like to be cremated when we die. You know, that's simple. And then, okay, but what do we want to do with our ashes? when we, after that and we went back and forth and you know he loves the ocean I love the ocean and all of that that's fine but we actually fixed on La Cumbra Peak <laughs> and it's a good spot you know and because you can be driving down the freeway on 101 and you can see it you know you can see the spot in the little trees sticking right, up right. and so we've gone up there a number of times you know around like New Year's or other times and we've just located like the tree you know where we plan on it and it's been kind of a nice little outing you know and it's not like scary or threatening or anything it's just like well this is the spot you know this is where we're going to put our ashes one day and we're probably going to put them there at different times you know chances are were were your kids involved in this adventure um they haven't been they haven't been with us on the expedition but they've certainly been told about it (laughs) and shown photos so they know your intentions yes they do yes they do yeah and i think that's just one way of you know Instead of saying, I'm, I'm never going to talk about it, I'm never going to think about it, I'm, I'm going to, you know, claim that's not going to happen, of being more like, it's going to happen, and you know, this is what we're going to do, you know, so. Yeah, I, I mean, this isn't a, a, a podcast about, about finance, but, I mean, you bring up another good point about, you know, as you do estate planning or, or as you have to as an adult when you have kids or even don't have kids, you do have to plan for your death, your your ultimate demise, right? Like what I was saying uh, when we started the podcast, it is the only thing that's guaranteed in life, right? And and it's funny to sit in, in your attorney's office and, and look at your estate plan, which, you know, has, you know, durable powers of, 
you know, attorney and healthcare right. and, and all the stuff that you, you should do in life, you know, yes. to, to kind of make it easier on your family and, and easier on, on yourself when you get to that point. But it's, it's like you have this, this kind of out of body thing thinking, wow, I'm actually planning for my death right now. Yes. Yes. And, you know, it's not something, again, we talk about it being, you know, taboo because I don't think I've had much discussion with my children about it. You know, it's for them being younger, it's, you know, out of sight, out of mind, and they have so much life ahead of them. Right. And, you know, um, and then they keep thinking, why am I talking about my own mortality? You know, they don't, they look at me as old, but not that old. Right. You're not grandma yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's. It, I think the it is hard for many people to countenance such a thought of planning for one's own death, but I think it's a huge kindness to do for one's own family to make arrangements to to make things clear, you know, to to have a advanced care directive in Santa Barbara County. We call it My Care. It's a very simple document, free to do, very good idea to, to do it. To make some arrangements about if I were to die. Here's where my, here's where you would have access to the information that you need to have. You know, it's a huge kindness because I, in my role as a grief counselor, talk to many people who are left stranded without the information that they need, including just simply what did my loved one want? You know, I don't even know what they wanted, you know, so I can carry out their wishes. So it's a tough subject. It's, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not, of course we all avoid it, but it's still really a big kindness to do. do. Do you get involved with every hospice family or is it a choice from the hospice families, whether they want to engage your service or not? Good question. And hospice lets every family know that they can have grief support if they want. And we stay in touch, but it's up to the individual. Some people don't need us at all and that's fine and other people do need us so we we have a method of staying in touch which is through a mailing and through phone calls and then after that it's up to the individual they can come to us and say i'd like to have grief counseling please and it's provided free of charge which is wonderful and this may be a a broad spectrum question but is there any commonality to to what you deal with in in terms of the patients and the families that that you interact with commonality in terms of in in terms of preparing them for 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 death before someone dies if they're on hospice care um i think the the and it's a little bit of a longer answer here kim but there's what we call an interdisciplinary team so more than one person a nurse looking at symptoms and pain management things like that a social worker helping with Oh, does this family need an, you know, an advanced directive or figure out who's the durable power of attorney for health care? Or maybe they need help with funeral arrangements whenever those are needed. You know, social worker plays a role. Chaplain will provide spiritual counseling and care. Um, and then um, sometimes there's even an, a grief need before someone dies, you know, anticipated grief, or grief now, even though the death hasn't happened yet. So... All of those members of the team are are trying to find out what's needed, you know, what's needed here in this particular individual and their their circle, uh, and it varies. It's with people of all ages, people of all backgrounds, just a huge diversity of, of people. So, commonality—they're all human, and 
they're all human and they're all, um, you know, going through something maybe kind of intense. So trying to meet them where they're at. You know, it's really interesting that you mentioned anticipatory grief. Um, I've almost died four times in my life, come very, very, very close. Um, fortunately, it hasn't happened, but I, I've come as close as a person could and survived some pretty major medical issues. And I was walking with my daughter this morning, and uh, and I was asking her whether she would be willing to come on the podcast and talk about what it was like to uh, consider losing a parent. And... Um, she just started crying and she said, oh. there's no way in the world that I could get a word out of my mouth. You and I would just sit, sit there for an hour and cry. That's oh. all we could possibly do uh -huh. <laughs> because yeah. in, from her experience, it's, it was, it's incredibly traumatic. The notion of losing me, we're, we're very close to each other and mm -hmm. uh, she's daddy's girl for sure. Mm -hmm. And she's had to go through um, watching me almost die. The first time she was only 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that it was very traumatic for her. Mm. And I know that, um, and she's told me, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to live with this notion that you're going to die. Um, mm. So, mm -hmm. uh, mm. you know, I, I understand from a very personal perspective how, um, I mean, I didn't do anything on purpose to, to die, you know, to yeah. meet, to almost meet death, but mm. it sure has affected my family in a very, very big way. Sure. So yeah. I, can, I can appreciate that notion of, of, I mean, it didn't happen. I'm really grateful that I'm alive. But I also know that th that the experiences that my family has gone through uh, were in extremely difficult and very, very, very uh, frightening and painful for them. Yeah, that does sound really, really hard um, because of being repeated, you know, more than once. You know, yeah. just yes, it's uh, sadly been repetitive. At <laughs> any one time, traumatic, but but many times, that's that's very hard. Do you ever work with, with people that have had these kind of experiences that I'm describing? Mm -hmm. Yes. So hospice will uh, conceivably, um, you know, talk to someone who, someone's family who, where the person didn't die, but almost died, um, and the yeah. kind of trauma that's left over after those kinds of experiences. Yes, and, and you know, I think all of us have gotten a bit more um, aware of, just trauma and trauma focused, you know, approaches in, uh -huh. in maybe the last five to 10 years, you know? Right. Um, and so sometimes people come to us and, and it, it's really, and I'm not an expert on trauma at all and probably, you know, need more um, education in that field. Um, but sometimes trauma is the presenting, you know, feature of what someone's struggling with. And, and so sometimes somebody who's really skilled with trauma is what's needed most. Right. And so we do refer out oh, okay. to other, many other, you know, resources, depending on the needs of the individual. Right. Um, but I will say that, you know, so many people nowadays have long-term chronic illness. Yes. And have maybe beat death a number of times or gotten close and maybe went into remission or you know there's just long trajectories to people's illnesses and so sometimes and when they do die and their family member comes to us or their friend comes to us for grief counseling they will talk about how long the 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 narrative was and how i i thought maybe they never would 
Because they had beaten it so many times. Right. You know, and that's part of their, you know, part of their really strong experience is, but I saw them come back, you know, I saw them come back and, you know, it's, it's, it, it just, I just, that's, I think just think that's an important feature for people in their, what they're going through is, right. is that something was anticipated, dreaded, feared, um, nearly lived through, pulled back from the edge and then again and again and again. And that's, that's something we definitely hear about. Um, and sometimes it's with somebody who's very elderly, you know, um, right. who just went through many things, you know, before they, they, they died. Well, I know when my daughter has talked to her friends or other family members about what she's gone through in relationship to me, that most of the time what she's told is, well, can't you just be grateful that he survived? You know, why do you have to be sad about that? Why, why, why do you have to be scared? You should just be happy because he's still here, which is a, a, a really sort of a, it's a denial of her experience in a, in a very profound way. Mm-hmm. And I always feel really sad when she you know, says to me, well, you know, everybody just tells me to be grateful that you're still here. They don't want to hear how scary and sad it was for me to have to consider not having my dad, right? Sure, Now, I know sure. that you, you, you talk about losing your dad when you were two, but I'm assuming that, that you could feel your mom's energy regardless of whether you remember the experience or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, if she had to hold everything in and just pretend like everything was okay, um, that had to have a really profound effect on you. And did you say you had a, bro- a brother? A brother, yes. I do have one, one brother who's a couple of years older than I am. Um, yeah, I think that, again, when when people encounter someone in grief or who's had a traumatic experience that causes them grief, they often feel very helpless and very at a loss themselves, even sometimes even panicky of just like, I have no idea what to say. I feel very uncomfortable right now. And so it's natural, uh, but unhelpful of them sometimes to jump in with a, you should, (laughs) you should just be grateful you should just be glad. You should just think of the good times. Right. And I mean, and sometimes in our grief groups, you know, we, we'll have conversations about that with the with the members, and it'll almost be, you know, almost lightheartedly, oh dear, people being well, but you know, right. the, the zingers and the you know the kind of the unhelpful statements that sometimes people make, and we've all made them. I mean, I've I've made poor statements to people right. you know in, in the past as well because I didn't know what to say and, and how to be with with someone so the feeling of helplessness is super strong um, when you're with somebody who's suffering and in grief and and I think for myself and for others um, that you know work as I do we're often dealing with our own helplessness all the time as well all the time all the time because it's the problem that cannot be fixed right the person cannot come back to life the beloved husband or wife or mom or best friend is not coming back. You know, it's, it's, it's an intractable problem. You know, we will never be able to fix it. And so so just working with that helplessness and um, the kind of humility of that is really important right. for me. You know, I have a very dear friend, actually, who lost his son, his 21-year-old son, in a very, very violent, tragic accident. And... Um, most of the people that talked to him after he lost his son would do what you were saying. Oh, he's in a better place. You know, try to think of the thing, the positive things, because in my experience, they were so frightened about this, the, the possibility that that could happen to them, mm-hmm. 
that all they wanted to do was make him go away and stop talking about mm-hmm. what happened mm-hmm. with his son. Mm-hmm. And he uh, approached mm-hmm. me and he said, um, if one more person tells me my son is in a better place, they're going to end up being with my son because I can't hear that from one more person. How the hell do they know where my son is? And, and it's so uh, disrespectful. Mm-hmm. And I, I, mm-hmm. I said to him, well, you know, this again is an example of what people do when they're afraid. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. It, it's, an, it's a little bit of a reaction. Um, but I think we can learn from each other um, in, in other ways, including um, grieving people can sometimes show us what grief looks like and they can educate us. And uh, right. Because I haven't lost my spouse or partner and yet I, here I am working in this area and I haven't lost a sibling and, right. you know, haven't lost a child. I, I sometimes, first of all, fess up to that and tell people that I, I don't have your loss. But also I've been educated by everyone I've met. Everyone I've met has taught me about their experience. Oh, okay. And I have learned from them, you know, what it, some, of, some of what it's like. Right. And I remember um, actually shortly after I got married, which is over 30 years ago, being with dear friends in Ireland. Um, and it was a couple of days after our wedding and we visited these dear friends and our friend Loretta, her sister had just died in a freak accident in Alaska where she'd been a park ranger and she had died in, in, you know, very unusual and and meet sudden circumstances. And I remember I was a young woman in my twenties at the time listening to our friend and she was just grieving. She was weeping. She was talking. She was emoting and she was talking about, how it was to be with her sister on life support and how that life support was getting ended and, and, and then the confusion and just the, how much she loved her sister and, and, and her, her pain. And it was all kind of coming out of her in the most real way. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, she's grieving, you know? I, I mean, and just like really appreciate, I mean, you know, this, uh, appreciating that really, respecting that, appreciating that, um, and I think that's the benefit of not not turning and running is, is that right. we can be educated by other people and see what this is what it looks like. It does look like this, you know, and that's that's grief. Yes, my friend did not need to be told his son was in a better place. No, and no. as soon as I put my arms around him, we sobbed together. Mm-hmm. He, he decided that he wasn't going to kill the people anymore. That telling him his son was in a better place because yeah. what he needed was, was exactly what you're talking about was not to be alone in his grief right right and not to feel not only um you know the incredible loss but not to go through it all by himself yeah yeah it makes a really big difference um to have people that understand and don't run mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. can be present to you during the, the saddest probably most frightening moments in your life so, so how do we, how do we do that, right? Because our our responses to trying to support our friends or our loved ones sometimes can be very awkward. We say the wrong thing, we don't know what to do, so on and so forth. And 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 I get the idea of just showing some level of vulnerability, some level of caring. But I but I think this is an interesting thing because we all know people year in and year out that have have suffered, you know from loss and, and how to respond appropriately to that. 
Well, it was easy for me because it was so clear to me what he needed. I just let myself feel what was missing, and right. what was missing was was comfort and compassion, not being, uh, uh, not making his son's death about my discomfort. Because when people say, you know, your son is in a better place or whatever, it's not for the person they're talking to. It's to, it's to reassure themselves that that's not going to happen to me. Right. And I know enough not to do that because uh, all it does is hurt the person that you're talking to. And it's not going to make my fear go away anyway. Because just because I tell myself, right, that what happened to his son is not going to happen to me and my son, there's no guarantee of that. So it doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think that the most important thing you can do is to try to understand your own feelings and to kind of, if you can, put them aside a little bit and be present to the person that is really going through probably one of the worst moments of their entire life. And it's not complicated. Mm-hmm. They just need to feel loved and supported in the in their process. And that's not usually with words. We're humans and we make it complicated. Oh, well, we make everything complicated, that's for sure. <laughs> that's one of the things we do best, I think, is overcomplicate things. I think it's, I think it's also okay to say, I'm, I'm sorry and I don't really have any words right now. I'm, I'm here for you. Um, and then do as much as you can do within your comfort zone, but don't feel like you have to go beyond that because you're human too and you're, you're not called on to... Uh, take on everything for another person, you know, and, and, and their, their, their grief is their experience. And, and maybe it's most helpful to just offer some practical help. You know, is there, can, can I walk your dog or, you know, I mean, sometimes those things are actually more needed and more helped, helpful than um, sort of emotionally trying to absorb everything, you know, that someone is, is feeling. Um, I was going to mention too that, uh, I, 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 I'm honest in, in saying it's much harder to deal with one's own family and friends than the, the clients that I serve. You know, if it's my person from my circle who's going through something very difficult, I'm much more scared. I'm much more uh, helpless feeling. I'm, I'm much more worried. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just am. And so it's, it's, it's different sometimes to go to an office and talk to a, a therapist or a counselor. And it's a container. It, there's a certain parameters around the whole thing. Uh, it's time limited, <laughs> you know, and, and then so, so I think there's a place for family and a place for community and a place for friends to support. And there's a place for professional support, too. And sometimes you have to do a bunch of different kinds of support, all all to working together to help someone. Um, I my, my husband went through a serious cancer diagnosis and treatment three years ago. I was I was as scared as the next person, <laughs> you know. I mean, as, maybe more so <laughs> from working in hospice, you know. I, I but it's it's. That we're in no way impervious to any of the feelings of helplessness or or, or sadness or fear as as anyone else um, when it happens to to us, you know. So I, I know that people want to try to do the right thing um, or say the right thing. Um, what, what's your opinion about being direct with people? In terms of, you know, we, we 
tend to walk on eggshells sometimes or, or dance around the edges because we don't want to um, understand the inevitable. Um, you know, it's going to be okay. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll live another six months when probably that's not the case. Um, so what's your opinions on being more direct in that situation? Yeah, I think you bring up the the question of like, what can I talk about with talk with about? with this person Absolutely. in going through these hard times, and I think it does call for um, some sensitivity to what is this relationship? Are we are we best buddies or are we acquaintances from the office? You know, like it depends on the relationship, mm. um, and then maybe ask a direct question. You know, ask a question. Do you want to talk about how treatment is going? you know, ask, maybe op- open the door, you know, do you want to talk about the, you know, your your mom died last month? Do you want to talk about that? Uh, as opposed to um, assuming they do, because people have so many variable um, needs, you know. People have told me, like, I don't want to be asked about it. And then other people like, I wish people would ask me about it. It's like, well, we don't know, you know. So maybe a direct question, you know, is, is appropriate sometimes of, hey, um, sure if you want to talk about this but just let me know if i i'm open if if you are and and if they like no the last thing i want to do is talk today so i want to walk or i want to watch the game or i want to you know not be in that space you know i've, I've spent the morning crying and now i just need some from some air or something you know it, it, people are variable so um and i think it, <laughs> it it is hard to know sometimes what the best approach is what's needed you know i don't always know. Is there anything else that you might um, help us understand that the average person probably doesn't about your work, the dying process, what, you know, the things that you've learned? Um, it's, a, it's a very unusual experience that you have. Um, my kids grew up, you know, my wife, she was a hospice nurse for a very long time. So they grew up with stories of death and they grew up with stories, you know, I help people live and she helps people die. Mm-hmm. It was a very unusual sort of um, upbringing for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always wondered, you want to hear stories about death today or do you want to hear stories about life today? <laughs> so I'm just kind of curious mm-hmm. about how, it's, how your work has changed you as a person. Well, my work has definitely changed me. That I will, I will give you that. But I was also wanting to um, share about the... Um, This, the, the new and scary world that people maybe feel like they're stepping into because somebody is seriously ill or somebody's on hospice care or they're talking about hospice care. Uh, so they, 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 it's appropriate to have fear if you think you're stepping into a new and scary world. Well, there are really good people in that world. There are good people. I mean, good nurses, good doctors, good helpers of different sorts. Some very kind, some very helpful. So I think... That's an important message to get across, is that, yes, you might be stepping into a world that you didn't really want to be in, like the world of, even like the world of cancer <laughs> is a world, I mentioned my husband had to step into that world um, a, a few years ago, and it's not a world you want to be in, we get that, but believe me, there are good people in that world waiting to help, waiting to be of help. Um, so I think that's an important kind of message to get across because all of us have fears of the unknown. And if we know that there are folks there who can help, then I think it's, it makes it a little bit less scary. Um, 
and and working in in this area has changed me greatly. Uh, being, I think I've worked my whole life with my own anxiety, my own fears. You know, losing my father, age two, in a sudden violent disaster, gave me the clear message from an early age: bad things happen. They happen randomly, without warning, and they very well may happen again at any time. So it was like a, you know, and people die young, another message, you know. So um, so my whole life I've had to, you know, face, face, I don't think it's face, but, but encounter my own anxieties, my own worries, grief, you know, sense of un, un, lack of safety in my whole life. And um, working in this area, you know, with respect for the dying process with respect for living as you die you know um respect for grief you know and and all of our kind of open-hearted humanness in all of this has helped me um not to be free of anxiety and worry that would be nice but 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 to to know more about how to how to understand it in myself how to care for myself in it with it and um and, and, and some of it has been allayed, you know, some of it honestly has been allayed. You know, my husband's experience with his mother dying, um, which I mentioned near the beginning of our chat, you know, it was, it was, it was an experience that anybody would want to have, you know, it was, it was an amazing experience. And wow, if that was what was like, people we were lining up for, a lot of us would be like, okay, I, that'd be okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. that would be okay. As opposed to like this dreadful abyss of horror, you know, it's like, no, 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 this was something that was, you know, life-changing and heart, heart-filling experience, you know, like being at a birth or something, you know. So, um, so I think some of my fears have, have, you know, very gratefully say this, have been allayed based on some of the, some of the learning I've done. Is there such a thing as a better death? A, a, a good death, and, and, and if, if so, in what context is that? I think it depends on the individual, what they want, you know, because people vary in what they would consider a good death um, for themselves based on their belief system, their philosophies, etc. Um, but certainly one where one has completed the tasks that you've wanted to complete, maybe, uh, that you have a sense of... Um, uh, not being alone, maybe being with people who are important to you, if that's who your people are. Um, most people would identify being comfortable and being without pain as being desi- very desirable. Um, and to, you know, to be able to die, um, having had a sense of, I've lived this life, I have lived, you know, I've lived. You know, I think that's, um, I think sometimes the idea of a good death can sometimes be over, overemphasized because we're not in control of, of all of life. And, and sometimes even, even, even at, with our best intentions, sometimes things go a little differently at, at the end of life. Um, so just like people who uh, often birth and death are, are compared usefully I, and 
you know, sometimes women who get super focused on the perfect birth, you know, then they end up with the emergency C-section or something and um, because life isn't fair or, or kind sometimes. And and for myself, I, the, the, the best death I would hope for myself would be um, not too sudden <laughs> for the sake of my family, um, somewhat prepared for um, and with enough like, you know, comforting grace that that it, it wouldn't be traumatic for others. I mean, that, maybe that's a low bar, but that's about as much as I would expect for myself. How do you counsel people that have regret that, you know, were going along just fine, got that stage four cancer diagnosis and said, oh my God, I had 10 years, 20 years of, of plans ahead of me and I'm not going to be able to get it and I should have done this, I should have done that. Well, I think regret is is almost universal. Some regret is almost universal. Um, and it can even be an aspect of, I'm not in control. I, I didn't get to do everything I wanted to do. You know, um, it's okay to have some regret because we all regret. I mean, look back on our lives we've already lived I and mean, we have regrets about the way certain things went at certain times. And to have, uh, you know, some kindness around one's own experience. It's like, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to get everything perfect all the time. I'm not going to be able to complete all my tasks, you know. Um, but people do have regret. I mean, they do. It, maybe it's better to know that there'll be some regret rather than expect no regret and then be hit with a lot of regret. Um, in, an example for me that I've often uh, reflected on with the people I work with, um, uh, many times people are um, wanting to be with their person when they're dying. I want to be there when they die. Or sometimes people say, I don't want to be there, and that, that's perfectly fine too. But for the people who really want to be there and then can't be there because there's a, a turn in the road and, you know, they didn't, they're out of town, they didn't get to be, you know, there's just something has happened where they are not with their loved one when they die. I often think about my own experience uh, where I was not with my mother when she died. I, I wasn't even with her for months before she died. And so I had to um, look at that as, am I going to regret that forever? Or am I going to say, that's the way it happened for my mother, is that she died far away from me without me being there. And to have, you know, kind of forgiveness around that mm -hmm. for myself, you know, because that's, that's the way it went. You know? You're being kind to yourself, and that provided the closure that you needed for myself, that that's was necessary. Yes, and and I certainly don't think it would have helped anybody to regret that for a long time. I mean, that's um, again, we, we things don't always go as as one would wish, you know, in these scenarios. So, so Dana, you've you've, for lack of a better term, you've been on death's doorstep a couple of times now over over your life, and and. Being there, what what was the reaction like for you? Uh, I have to say that because uh, the, at least three of the four experiences were very sudden and unexpected, the reaction was one of very intense shock and fear because it, it was they were unexpected. Mm -hmm. One of them, I knew that I was going to die, and I had to convince some of the doctors that. Uh, were treating me that there was something really wrong with me because I went through a million tests and everything was normal. 
but I had a feeling inside my body that I was going to die. I knew for sure that if something didn't happen in very short order, that I was going to die of a heart attack, for sure. It took a lot of convincing to get my physicians to to take me as seriously as I wanted them to because uh, the medical evidence didn't support my feeling. But I'm not somebody who gives up easily, and I, I trust the way that I feel. And so I, I did whatever it took in order to get the proper medical uh, treatment to prolong my life. But I know that I was very close to dying. And it was extremely, probably more frustrating than anything that I couldn't get anybody to listen to me and take me seriously. Uh, but the other ones were really sudden experiences that were completely out of control and ended up, you know, being in an ambulance, being taken to the hospital and, and wondering if I was going to survive. And one time I was absolutely felt myself dying. Mm. And uh, amazingly enough, it was an incredibly peaceful experience. It felt really lovely actually mm-hmm. um there was it was just such a, a peaceful quiet um absence of pain uh and and then all of a sudden i woke up um so i guess again it wasn't my time to die even though i felt like i was certainly on my way so how's your perspective on dying shifted um i don't really feel like i'm necessarily afraid to die because i've had you know, I guess the more experiences you have with something that is dramatic, very dramatic. You're more informed now. Yeah. Um, and plus, the, the, the one time that I thought I was dying was incredibly peaceful. Um, I, I'm not a religious person, so I don't believe in, like, heaven or hell or any of that stuff. I, 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 so I'm not afraid of what's going to happen to me when I die. I don't feel like I'm going to, you know tortured in some way or have to spend eternity trying to make up for my misdeeds. I think that that's an incredibly stupid way of living in the world and, and not helpful in any way. All it's going to do is make you feel terrified and ashamed of yourself. And that's just not how I want to live. So, um, I, I'm just assuming it's going to happen. Mm. And, and I don't know when, obviously Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm incredibly lucky because, um, uh, I mean, the first time I almost died, I was I was surfing. I know three people that died in the water surfing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I mean, I got lucky. Just wasn't your time. It wasn't my time, mm-hmm. right? And you know, I know lots of people that have been disabled by having really severe strokes or or died from them. And you can't look at me and see that I've had some major major strokes. I don't have any leftover symptoms. So uh, I figured that it, the better I take care of myself. Not that's going to prevent me from having bad experiences, but at least I'm going to recover more quickly than the average person. Mm. So I try to control the things I can, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I try to understand the things that I can't control and do the best I can to take really really good care of myself despite the fact that I'm more fragile than most people my age. Mm. So Dorina, we have a couple minutes left uh, in our uh, discussion, um, which is uh, very eye-opening. what are a couple things that you would like to leave um, for our listeners um, that they should take away from this conversation? Well, it's a very good idea to get your affairs in order and have an advanced directive and all of that because while none of us wants to die, you do want to make things as easy as possible for the people left behind. So... That's a good idea, and it's 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 a good goal to have. There's even a, a peacefulness that can come from having completed those tasks. 
even if you have 50 years more left to live, it's still a good idea to get those things done. And uh, one of the questions we get most often about grief is how long is this going to last and am I going to feel this bad, you know, for a long time? And I would say that take some comfort in that grief changes a lot. It, it, it keeps changing as an experience and it can feel better, you know, with, with support, with some different kinds of um, help or approaches or just ways of, of looking at it. You, you People do feel better. People do do survive even what they think is unsurvivable loss. The loss of the most beloved person is survivable. Um, and so those are two important messages around, around just getting your, getting your life together and for the sake of those you do love that you might leave behind, try to uh, get things in order. Um, and, and then there are, there are helpful people to help you deal with some very challenging things uh, like chronic illness or terminal illness, um, hospice and palliative care are wonderful supports available to to pretty much everyone in our community. So don't be afraid of asking for that help or looking into that help. Uh, they, they have been shown to make a huge difference in how people get through these really hard times. I think that's really good advice. D Dana, any last words from you? No, I just really appreciate your uh, candor and how, I mean, I have a lot of experience in the hospice world because of my wife, and you are very much like most of the people I've met, so dear and kind and loving. So we really appreciate oh, you willing you. to come on our podcast and, again, talking about something that we are all, uh, it's going to happen to all of us, and it is something that's really frightening, and I wish for all of us that we could talk about it more openly. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you guys for what you're doing. Yeah, thank you for being here. So that was an interesting and uh, excellent way to begin our discussions on the fear of death. And, and again, I want to reiterate that it's okay to fear death. It's actually how we manage that fear um, that will get us to that place of, of, of comfort um, in facing that when it actually is our time or, or a family member's time or, or a friend's time and, and, and how we actually deal with that um, in a caring uh, and positive way. Um, I'm interested, Dana, in, in kind of your takeaways uh, from our discussion with Dorena. Well, you know, Kim, there's a couple of things that I thought were really important about uh, what Dorena had to say. Number one, it appears as though she used her intuition in order to help her heal some of her own trauma based on her father's death and her mother's death because she chose a career that, uh, that helped her heal. You know, when I asked her how her life had changed as a result of being uh, in the hospice world, she said that you know, she started off with a lot of anxiety and feelings of uh, not feeling safe in the world. And the more that she was able to help people come to terms with their own dying process and, and grief and all of that, that it actually helped her feel safer as a person and more uh, comfortable in her own skin. 
Um, and I really believe that intuitively, even though she may not have used that term exactly, that she just knew inside what her calling was and, um, and got to the place where she was willing to honor that. She went back to school. So it was a, you know, a, a major process to get to that point. And uh, it seems like it's not just served the people that she takes care of, but also helped her uh, in her healing process. Uh, like I said, it's, it's a great way to start. Um, it, it, we're not stopping on the fear of death conversation. Uh, our next episode, we'll have another in-studio guest, and, and we'll continue our discussion on it. So until next time. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.